right, everyone. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm feeling so good today, Kiki. I'm feeling great. My brother had a baby. Oh. Yeah, it's so sweet. A little girl. She used to be stem cells, Kiki. She used to be stem cells. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. She still has a lot of stem cells doing their work. Even, you know. Well, she's all grown up now. No, now well, she's the in the, cell. what is it? She's the fourth trimester or something, you know, yeah, oh, no, <laughs> isn't yeah, that what they the call it? Trimester. That is pretty <laughs> miserable. I'm not going to lie. It's the worst of the trimesters and I didn't even have to have my two babies. So yeah, this I thing is now, you. it's outside of you and it's still going to be attached to you for the next three months and then for the next 18 years. There we go. But it's good. It's a good thing. It's yeah. a good thing. Spring is here. There's a baby. Everybody's psyched. It's the first baby, actually, the first baby girl in uh, my oh. family of like six kids so far. But it's been all boys. So everybody's psyched. I'm psyched. I can tell you're very enthusiastic, at least. Totally. Absolutely. Really, truly. It's Easter, and then it's springtime, and then babies, and a little yeah. baby girl at that. So everybody can buy her cute bows and dresses and I don't know all that stuff all yeah that stuff we did yeah. it all right well it is time for us to get into the bows and the ribbons and the science make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you will find all of our past episodes and other great resources and of course follow us on social media we're at stem cell podcast on twitter stem cell podcast on facebook and of course don't forget to subscribe to us on itunes oh and now i guess we're also on stitcher That's great. So new episodes can automatically download to your phone if you're subscribed via these methods. That's nice. Anyway, we have a great show today, and we're going to be discussing the latest science and stem cell news, and we are interviewing stem cell scientist Allison Mwatri about his work on stem cells to understand the eating disorder anorexia nervosa. But first, you ready to round it up, Dalen? I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. ready. Let's do it. I want to round it up. But wait, oh. not quite yet. Oh. As you know, as we like to do just before the roundup, I'm going to tell you quickly about another way you can get your research paper fill. You know, if you haven't had enough from us, and I know you, everybody who loves science can't get enough. Stem Cell Technologies has another Connexon newsletter to introduce this week. It's called Extracellular Matrix News. Now, people give the extracellular matrix short shrift. I'll tell you why. It's not like a cell. No transcription going on in there, no DNA, but extracellular matrix is everywhere. It's what everything attaches to. So you got to keep up on what's going on with the ECM, and the ECM news is there for you. It's sent out for free every week to researchers around the world who are interested in ECM biology. Keep current with the latest research, news, events, and jobs related to the ECM at www.extracellularmatrixnews.com. I'm going to get that. But first, I'm going to round it up. Well, you're going to round it up, and then I'm coming. All right, Kiki, kick it off for me, will you? All right. Kicking it off with some sloppy science. Ugh. Yeah, nobody likes sloppy science. I mean, science, this is this practice that we are trained in, right? To observe and take rigorous notes, to preserve our data with integrity, to work with our subjects 
Incredibly. And uh, well, it turns out there's a new report about scientific integrity from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. And one of the researchers involved in the study on this report anyway, when people don't get enough funding, if they're under a budgetary crunch, sometimes they cut corners and science gets sloppy. That's the finding of this new report. Very disappointing. It's disappointing, but it makes a little bit of sense. I mean, everybody in science is at one point or another at the wills of the small budget and you have to troubleshoot and you have to pull things together. And it's a very creative practice trying to make things work on as small a budget as you may sometimes have. But with science, you want to try and maintain that integrity. Don't let things get sloppy. But Researcher Brian Martinson at the Health Partners Institute in Minneapolis says that some proportion of people might find themselves making bad decisions and cutting corners. These can include poor data handling, not keeping tight control of patient privacy, and even bending other rules. He says almost half of the scientists who responded to their survey said they had had engaged in at least one of those activities in the prior three years. And they said that many had violated multiple standards. And he says, when you get people engaging in that many kinds of consistent, undesirable practices, this can certainly undermine the quality of the work and therefore the ability to reproduce it. And as we see a lot of research not being reproducible, we got issues with that. Maybe this is part of it. We don't know. I mean, can't say causatively. This is definitely, you know, Got to remember the correlation and the causation for everything. But chasing down false leads, it hampers the search for understanding disease and seeking treatments. And we have to understand why people are cutting corners in the first place. Why are they pushing certain directions, cutting corners? Is it budgetary or is it the pressure to publish? We don't know. Another researcher says, if you're in an environment that has very high stakes and very low chance of success... Two predictors of environments in which people are going to cheat. We've got these predictors, and now the funding at all-time loans, we can expect this phenomena to continue. Yeah, this is pretty scary. You know, what jumped out at me is at least half of the people. It's like if I went to like 100 dentists and we're like, yeah, have you defrauded a patient and given them a root canal when they didn't need one? And half of them are like, yeah, I've done that in the last three years. I mean, that's remarkable. The fact that you're so, I mean, I'm sure it was anonymous and everything, but the fact that it it seems like it's almost normalized. So that's what really scares me about this is that we're looking for reasons, yes, but it seems like nobody's really surprised. So we'll have to see. Yeah, let's go back to the research protocol standards, everybody. Let's get those SOPs in the binders and make sure everybody knows to read the binders and follow the rules. Yes, come on. Let's do it. Come on. Yeah, and we're recording this. This is going to come up after April 22nd, the March for Science. This show is going to be published. But as we're coming up to it, this is, one I think, one of the points. Let's march for science. Let's support science because funding in science is going to help better science be done. And if you're worried about tax dollars going into a black hole of science research, you know, cutting the funding is definitely not going to help. That's a really good point. Yeah. Really cool technology developed as we, you know, move through climate change. We've just come off a La Nina winter here in North America with water falling everywhere all over the West Coast. We've got these 
massive snowpack, massive water. Everybody in California has probably already forgotten about the drought, even though they're still technically in a drought and behind their water supplies. But we got areas all over the world that are going to be coming drier. And it's going to be harder to find drinkable water in places where there are many, many people. And so a researcher, chemists at the University of California, Berkeley, have produced a device. It's very small. It's like the size of a coffee mug. And it can, in an hour, harvest the equivalent of a Coke can's worth of water from the air, as long as there's about 20% humidity in the air. And so if you want to think about what is 20% humidity, Las Vegas, average afternoon relative humidity, 21%. And I think Las Vegas seems like a pretty dry place, hot and dry. But if you were there and Las Vegas was a ghost town and there were no water because everyone had run away and you had this device, you could potentially survive in the desert. <laughs> quite a scenario you've painted there. I, you know, I come up with You these. know what? If you're the only person in Las Vegas and everyone else has run away, kill yourself. <laughs> uh, the way this idea works is pretty standard. It's a condenser. And there are water condensers. People use these types of devices to purify salt water. These kinds of devices have tried to get harvest water from the air in previous incarnations, but this particular prototype has a layer of a very special material that they're calling MOF801, and it's mixed with a copper foam. And if it's left in the shade, it doesn't even have to be in the sun when it starts. If it's left in the shade, it can collect water vapor from the air. It's like a big sponge that really is attracted to water vapor. And then when you move the device into direct sunlight, that layer heats up, the vapor escapes into a chamber, and then it cools down and condenses into liquid water. No way. So it's like overnight you leave it almost in yeah. the dark, and then mm -hmm. the sun comes up, cooks it up, boom. Exactly. Awesome. And then you've got water for the day. This is a prototype. They are trying to get it to produce more water. They have right now reported in science, laboratory tests have allowed the device to harvest 2.8 liters of water a day for every kilogram of this MOF801 substance that's used. And they think that this really could be scaled up to produce water for entire communities or be used as personal water production devices in very dry regions. I don't know. Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> Las Vegas, I'm looking at you. You might want to invest in this technology. <laughs> yes, for sure. Although, in all seriousness, in Africa, I'm yes, sure this is really ways because it's not just about dry places, but sometimes the water is just not drinkable, not potable. So even in higher humidity areas. So I think yeah. this is a big deal. And I know you're about to come. I got a little sneak preview here. The next story, too. This is I love science that's centered on you know, need that is universal and global and not just in the developed world. So pretty cool stuff. It is very cool stuff. And thanks for sagging me into the next story. So have you ever watched that British show, Sherlock? Obviously. Yeah, great show. Love it. Well, this has nothing to do with that, <laughs> <laughs> except for the name. Researchers have developed a new technique for detecting little tiny amounts of viruses like Zika 
dengue, bacteria, certain pseudomonas bacteria. This can differentiate between strains of the pneumonia-causing bacteria. And it works using the CRISPR-Cas9 system. They've kind of changed it up a little bit. It's not CRISPR-Cas9. It uses a different enzyme, very related, called Cas13A. And this is really specific. And it's using a guide RNA to tell it where to go. And it's really good at getting to where it needs to go, hence being able to detect little teeny tiny amounts of virus, viral RNA, for instance. This Cas13A Once it gets to the RNA, it's very specific to RNA. It snips that target and starts cutting RNA that it encounters. It's like snip, 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 cutting little pieces all over. And these collateral cuts, once it's bound and begins its cutting job, this is what forms the basis for this tool that they call Sherlock. Sherlock is this really strange acronym stands for Specific High Sensitivity Enzymatic Reporter Unlocking. Wow. Cumbersome. Cumbersome. Yeah. Anywho, they wanted to be cute and I don't know. And Sherlock can find little tiny clues. Makes sense. That's good. Maybe that's where it makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) And so one of the researchers from the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Feng Zhang, says nature has a lot of very amazing tools. And they demonstrate that Sherlock can detect viral and bacterial infections, cancer mutations at low frequencies, and very subtle DNA sequence variations, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms that can be linked to different diseases. And so to allow it to detect these really tiny amounts of virus, when they were doing their tests, they spiked samples containing Zika or dengue virus with a fluorescent reporter RNA. And then when the RNA is cut, it there's an energetic release of fluorescent rays that, that can then be detected. The team then sets off Cas13A connected to a bit of RNA that targets genetic sequences from either Zika or dengue. And then once Cas13A found and sliced just a, you know, a few of these little viral sequences, it subsequently started snipping the fluorescent reporters and creating this detectable signal that indicated the presence of the virus. And it's really high sensitivity, specific high sensitivity. So as long as you have that little RNA bit of whatever it is you want to detect, this could potentially allow you to detect it very, very easily. The, the sensitivity of this new CRISPR-Cas13A system is one million times better than the ELISA test that is currently used diagnostically to detect proteins. It's a thousand times more sensitive than a CRISPR-based Zika virus diagnostic that was described last year in a cell paper. And then it not only makes it easier to find infections or cancer mutations that these less sensitive diagnostics can miss, but it has atomolar, atomolar detection ability. So it's faster. It's a quicker test. So fast, specific, this is going to help a lot. If they can take this test and make it easy, you know, put it in a little chip or a dish that can be just sent everywhere that doesn't need a lot of supplies to make it work. This is the kind of detection technique that would really, really benefit hospitals and other diagnosticians around the world. So listen to this. I literally two hours was at talk by Fen Zhang, you know, the oh. famous Fen Zhang. He was here at Wild Cornell and he gave a talk and he painted a picture. So he was presenting this work. They're doing what you just said. 
they freeze dry in these little punches. They freeze dry all the components. You send that to on site anywhere. You don't need refrigeration. Perfect. You take a drop of blood and you drop it on these freeze dries and you get a binary signal straight away. Fluorescence means that it's positive for that tiny atomolar concentration of the viral RNA. And, you know, no fluorescence means negative. So you really can send this out and get these epidemics before they even present symptoms, these people, which will really be revolutionary for treatment and prevention of disease outbreak. And it's no coincidence. Who do you think is funding this work? The Gates Foundation. Oh, yes. Focusing their efforts on making real change for, for the, the developing, developing world. world. Yeah. So this is, I was so heartened to see this. This guy, Fenzang, is out of control. He needs to, he, <laughs> they need to I don't know it. when stop he's going to stop. No. He's just keep, <laughs> you know, it's pretty impressive. I love it. Keep going. This is the kind of technology that we need for addressing the healthcare issues that are going to come up as the world gets closer and closer together. More and more connected. Yeah. And my final story, we're actually working on getting the author, one of the authors of this story, Rick Horowitz from the Allen Institute to come on our show. But this is a really wonderful story of art meeting science. There's an artist named Graham Johnson, and he dreamed of constructing three-dimensional data-driven models that could capture all of the complexity of cells. Right? We all know cells are very complex. You know, the textbook images of oh, a cell membrane and then a nucleus in the middle and a few organelles, very simplistic compared to what the actual interior of a cell is like. And so Graham Johnson joined the Allen Institute for Cell Science. And this is a research center based in Seattle that was founded by the Microsoft co-founder, Paul Allen. And this institute has been working, Graham has been working with about 50 cell biologists, microscopy specialists, computer programmers for the last two years to develop something called the Allen Cell Explorer. And it is a public collection. It's not private. They've made it public. These are the first human cells ever visualized in 3D. And they used a deep learning model to predict how cells are organized. And so they basically trained a bunch of deep learning algorithms on 3D images of more than 6,000 induced pluripotent human stem cells. So they used human stem cells to create their models. And so to make the images in the first place, they dyed the stem cells outer membrane and nuclear DNA so that they kind of stood out as, okay, points that could be counted on in this in all the noise of what's going on in the cell. And then they use CRISPR-Cas9 to fluorescently tag proteins that were really well known in microtubules and mitochondria and other structures throughout the cell. And then they use really powerful microscopes to capture that fluorescent multicolored light display. And then the algorithms took these flat images, the scans of these slices of the cells, and rendered them into 3D models. And it's kind of like you would think of what a radiologist would does with CT scans when they're putting together images of organs or bones or brain or whatever. So now the images, they're 3D. You can spin them around in the browser. You can see the mitochondria. You can see the nuclei. And there have been measurements made based on this library now. And they're figuring out general distances, average distances between structures and they're also looking at protein density. So how are proteins kind of accumulated together or dispersed? And so they're using these numbers to predict 
where certain structures live inside cells. And so if you give the model pictures of a nucleus and a cell membrane and the microtubules, then it will tell you, the model will say, your mitochondria should be over here Mm. and predict where the mitochondria should live. And so right now they're showcasing the model's predictions and 2D image data, but they're hoping in the future users will be able to generate and actually explore three-dimensional cells. And then the other really neat thing, I mean, it's cool starting with stem cells, but what they're hoping to be able to do is visualize the life of a cell. So can you go from birth or growth, division, apoptosis, can you visualize all these processes as they occur and how the structure of the cell changes over time? Scientists can order detailed information for all of the Institute's fluorescently tagged human stem cell lines at the cost of distribution, this is around $600. And so they've got a bunch of, bunch of stuff out there and they're hoping cell biologists, drug developers are going to conduct their studies with stem cells instead of cancer-derived cell cultures that are currently used today, which have their own problems. And so if you're interested, you can go to allen, A-L-L-E-N, org to check it out. But we're going to be talking about the whole process, hopefully on the next show. Another example, philanthropic effort leading to real scientific advance. In this case, really beautiful in this case because of the fluorescent images are really quite striking. There's like nature or science that does their visualizations contest. Yeah, and yeah. The cell picture show. Cell, yeah. Yes. Uh, this, this is, is going to be a it. big winner. Yeah. Clean sweep. <laughs> Not even applying. Uh. <laughs> All right. Tell me about stem cells. Let's move from pictures of stem cells to new cells. New cells. You want to hear about a new cell? So, you know, there's a million types of stem cells. The original embryonic stem cell was just the first of many type of pluripotent stem cells. Then they had the, you know, epiblast pluripotent stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells. Now we've got another one, the EPS cell. All right. So this is from researchers at Salk and uh, some researchers based in China. Familiar names. Juan Espizua Belmonte and Jun Wu, who we had on the show a couple yeah. months ago. but. We'll get to them. So they, they've created a new kind of stem cell, one that's more versatile than any other normally grown in the lab. It's called an extended pluripotent stem cell. That's the E in EPS. And it can give rise to every cell type in the body. And I know everyone said, wait, I thought that's what pluripotent stem cells did. But that's been confined to the embryo proper, the embryonic cells, all the cells that are in your body. But there's a huge other component that allows the embryo to grow, and that's the extra embryonic tissues. And typically, pluripotent stem cells that we've used in the past have been restricted from forming these cell lines. Amazingly, the researchers showed that not only could these cells contribute to embryos and contribute to the extra embryonic tissues, they showed that just one cell of these EPS cells, one EPS cell can generate an entire organism, which is unprecedented. So is this like, you were talking about extra embryonic, is this like the placenta? Yes, yes. Thanks for clarifying. It's like the placenta. It's the trophoblast, which is like the shell around the embryo when it implants. Mm. It contributes to the yolk sac elements that allow the sustenance and the interface of the mother with the fetus. So these are essential Mm. cell types that we haven't really seen before. And it kind of makes sense because we've been getting pluripotent stem cells from that inner cell mast after the bifurcation of the zygote into the trophectoderm and the inner cell mass. So these cells, they kind of go back in time. And as I said, they can reliably give rise to both types of cells. And thus, 
the whole embryo and offspring. They were made, these cells, from both human and mouse embryonic stem cell lines. It's kind of a treatment. You take existing stem cells and then you can kind of like bring them back to a more ground state by incubating them in these drug cocktails. These cells were also created from induced pluripotent stem cells that were made from fibroblasts by treating with a typical cocktail. So again, we, we have a, a resource now where we can take either existing embryonic stem cell lines or we can get new patient-derived iPS cell lines and make them into this cocktail that will allow them to uh, form extra embryonic tissues. To demonstrate the ability to make all these cell types, the researchers grew an entire mouse from just one cell. Can you believe that? I mean, how does that even make sense? You know, clonal growth, I guess, showing that it can go in both directions. And they also grew chimeric mice using human EPS cells that integrated into the mice. Now, this is a really big deal. When we were talking to Jun Wu, I guess a couple months ago, they were, we were talking about how he was making these human pig chimeras yeah. for making human organs in a pig is one application of that. And the real barrier to doing that in the past has been that the cells haven't been synced up. They haven't been able to contribute because maybe they're too far along in development. And there were some treatments before this that have been made kind of ground state. It's called pluripotent stem cells, a similar type of drug cocktail. And those were able to contribute more to these interspecies chimeras. But this is taking even one step back, you know, before the ground state, before the pluripotent stem cells and the embryo proper even really exist. So the extension of the study is really exciting. Uh, according to Dr. Wu, the superior chimeric competency of both human and mouse EPS cells is advantageous in applications such as the generation of transgenic animal models and the production of replacement organs. We're now testing to see whether human EPS cells are more efficient in chimeric contribution to pigs, whose organ size and physiology are closer to humans. So the fact that these are able to contribute to a greater degree to these interspecies chimeras, Dr. Wu has already showed us that he can get these cells to form you know, a substantive amount of these pig embryos, and he was really only being careful to avoid any ethical complications and to make sure that they were doing their works, you know, smartly and with uh, attention to the many considerations. So I think now we've introduced a new cell type that's likely to give even greater contribution, perhaps even forming whole organs. So I think this is going to be the beginning in a raft of studies that are geared towards, you know, interspecies chimerism and it's freaky, but it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and the the place that my my sci-fi brain goes to immediately, I'm like, oh, this is creating humans in a dish. This is, you know, if we can create the placenta and we can create all that, where's your IVF going to go next, Dalen? Uh, it's not oh, going to wow. be in vitro. It'll just be in the synthetic uterus. Ex utero, exactly. <laughs> Yes, well, I think Welcome that to the can Matrix. remain in your imagination, because <laughs> we got to make that uterus first. But hey, I'm not saying it'll never happen. I'm just saying it's not going to be five to ten years, no, all right? No, not at all. No promises. But I'll tell you what's going to happen before five to ten years, and that's we're going to gain some insight into familial pulmonary arterial hypertension. So pulmonary arterial hypertension, a little background. The etiology of this disease is that the small arteries in the lung they narrow in diameter, okay? And what this leads to is higher blood pressure or hypertension in the pulmonary artery coming off the heart. And ultimately, what this leads to is decreased flow of oxygen to the body, you know, to all the tissues in the body from the lungs. 
So our deoxygenated blood is pretty much the problem. So it manifests with patients, you know, low exercise tolerance and poor quality of life and ultimately heart disease. So the thing is, is familiar, which is curious, is this FPAH, that's called familial pulmonary arterial hypertension. The disease is caused by this mutation in BMPR2, BMP receptor 2. But the funny thing is, is that only in 20% of people who have this mutation does the disease actually manifest. So 80% of patients that have this mutation, it's not predictive of any disease manifestations. So it's curious. The question behind this study that was published in Cell Stem Cell was what is it about these patients that may be protective or what is it about the 20% with the mutation that were manifest that's adding to the or causing the disease to ultimately manifest. So what they did was they took the patients where it didn't manifest, that 80%, versus the patients where it did manifest versus controls, and they made iPS cells from all of them. And they made the endothelial cell from these iPS cells, the endothelial cell being the imagined component or hypothesized component of the small arteries where the defect arises. Somehow in those cells is the problem. And they performed an analysis of the endothelial cells from these three lines to look for what was different in terms of modifiers of BMP signaling. And phenotypically, the cells in the diseased patients where it actually manifests, they actually recapitulated perhaps some elements of the disease. The endothelial cells showed reduced adhesion, survival, migration, and angiogenesis compared to the non-disease manifest and control cells. And when you looked at the cells where the disease didn't manifest, so this is the 80% of cells where there wasn't a disease, it was called it the rescued phenotype in these cells. It was thought to be, and it looked to be due to an increase in factors that are specific for BMP activation or in reduction of an inhibitory influence on BMP. So bottom line, in the cells where the patients weren't affected, it seemed like there was some way of augmenting BMP signaling, protecting or rescuing BMP signaling that wasn't present in those 20% of patients where the disease actually manifested. And this is amazing because it, it highlights a potential protective modifier for these mm-hmm. patients where the disease does manifest in this FPAH that could help either inform the progress of disease and even identify treatments and treatment strategies. So you can imagine... If you have an indicator and, you know, in the future where everyone's genome is sequenced, you have someone with a BMP mutation that puts them at risk, you can maybe prophylactically treat them to reinforce BMP signaling and avoid manifestations of the disease. So this is another case of using iPS cells to gain insight into disease and to, you know, perhaps treat that disease, not using cell therapy per se, but using a more traditional pharmacological regimen, perhaps, that augments signaling in these at-risk patients. Yeah, and with cardiovascular disease being one of the top killers, if not the the top killer of people, especially in the United States, even reducing that 20% of individuals will have a dramatic impact. Right, and you never know. Even when the disease starts to present, maybe you can reverse it. So really important study, Uh, no coincidence, it's in cell stem cell. And now I'm going to go to something that's, you know, less clinical, but has real implications. So there was a whole suite of studies in uh, cell stem cell in the past issue that were focused on genetic heterogeneity in human pluripotent stem cells, specifically induced pluripotent stem cells. Okay, so a longstanding question in the field is why is 
the expression patterns and the differentiation potential and general behavior of different iPS cell lines, why is it different? Not only between people, so people, one person's iPS cell behaves differently from another, but also in different iPS cell lines from the same patient, you can get different kinds of behavior. So a long you know, history of studies have looked into this since the advent of iPS cell technology and epigenetics and the residue of the, the cell of origin has been implicated in this process and maybe topic or continued expression of the reprogramming vectors has been implicated. But this was the first or these many studies, but we're going to focus on one out of uh, Ihor Lemishka's lab. And this is kind of the, one, among the first groups of studies that really systematically with a massive amount of data look into what may be underlying this heterogeneity. So in this study, they took 101 individuals and they derived 317 iPS cell lines from them. And then what they did is they looked at the gene expression using RNA sequencing. Okay, so this is a crazy amount of data. And I'm not going to tell how they did because I don't even know. You look at this paper and it's like reading alien. It's not even a language that I can internalize. <laughs> but I trust their conclusions. You know why? Because these are not people who take shortcuts, alluding to your science roundup story. This, these guys are pretty meticulous and deliberate and very careful in their conclusions. But what they identified was essentially about 50% of the expression variability. It can be explained by actual genomic differences, the difference in genetic sequence between individuals, okay? And within the other 50%, a major factor underlying the heterogeneity of expression is polycomb targets. So targets of these polycomb factors that are epigenetic modifiers of chromatin. So essentially, it's like, you know, half of it is that we're all different genetically, and the other half of it is that during the life of the cell and or the reprogramming process, the earmarks on chromatin, these epigenetic modifications, can lead to changes in downstream expression. So this is really useful, not only as insight, but it can give us an idea of how we can understand and perhaps even control, predict the differentiation of iPS cell lines based on these kind of polycomb modifications and perhaps even looking at the primary genetic sequence as an indication of what the potential of various iPS cell lines may be. It's huge. It's huge. It's, it's a huge, huge amount of data. At it's least. a lot of data. Know. Yeah. I love it's the, these findings shed light. I mean, I think of it as like, you know, you're maybe opening a door into, you know, this really huge dark room, you know, yes. huge. <laughs> visualize just a small amount of light entering this cavernous dark warehouse of data. Yes, certainly. Yes, <laughs> but this is really, it is important to understand how things get transcribed, how things get become different between individuals? And when is it the chromatin? When is it the DNA? When is it the epigenetic factors? These are interesting questions. I, for one, was surprised by 50% of yeah. difference being accounted for by just genetic variation, especially when you consider that, you know, we share 50% of our DNA with a banana, Kiki. So, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about human to human variation, genetically, we're like 99 point something percent identical, right? Yeah. So how can such an expression, it's really bizarre. I don't even want to ask that question to these guys because they'll probably send me about a million figures and I'll go blind. But it's an interesting question that someone should ask, someone with patience. Yeah, it's funny though. I mean, I think we've been saying this for a while coming from the biology behavior side of things. There's the nature versus nurture debate. And 
for mm. a while I've been talking about it being 50%, about 50% nature and about 50% nurture. And this is kind of hitting back go. from this <laughs> from this different data direction. It's that's what I think is interesting. 50%. It's yeah. a round number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that, I think. We should talk about with Dr. Moatri. I mean, part of his study that takes such uh, courage is trying to reconcile that environmental with the genetic. So we'll see. We'll see how that works out with his own IPS study. All right, last story. This one's about the brain. My so, favorite! Love the brain. I mean, <laughs> I'm different. I have, I have a heart. You, you've got a brain. What are you? You're the, the tin man? I'm the lion. <laughs> well, Tin Man, I'll tell you something. You ain't too shabby in the brain department, but, you know, everybody knows somebody that's affected by disease and mm-hmm. particularly Parkinson's, which is with the advanced age, you know, people are living longer than ever. That's increasingly prevalent. We've got a new approach to treating Parkinson's, and this is kind of an in situ approach. Okay, Rather than generating cells in vitro from induced pluripotent stem cells, replacing those dopaminergic cells, with a, you know, exogenous supply. These researchers have an approach that's focused on direct in situ transdifferentiation of a closely related cell, the astrocyte. So the astrocyte, it's normally supportive of the neuron, but these researchers are showing that with a relatively simple cocktail of transcription factors, you can reprogram, directly reprogram a cell that is already inside the brain and change the function in a way that you can improve neurological symptoms. That's a quote from senior author Ernest Arenas, who is a professor of biochemistry at Karolinska Institute. So previously, as I said, scientists have been nudging cells to pluripotent cells first and then making the specialized cell of interest But, you know, that's complicated when you're changing the cell into induced pluripotent stem cell. We've learned from all these studies that have come before that there's a lot of considerations you have to bear in mind considering oncogenesis, considering any residual pluripotent stem cells that may form teratoma. So direct transdifferentiation to a non-pluripotent stem cell would be preferable. And people have done that in the dish. They'll grow whatever kind of cell, fibroblasts in some cases, or other types of cells, neural in some and transdifferentiate them in a dish. But this group, using a cocktail of three genes in a small RNA molecule, so those genes are NeuroD1, ASCL1, LMX1A, and the microRNA 218, MIR218. These researchers, they forced astrocytes to transform directly into dopamine neurons. So they did this in culture with cultured human astrocytes that they reprogrammed, and they acted just like normal midbrain dopamine neurons. They grew new axons, they made long fibers with connected with other neurons, they fired electrical signals in the synapse, and they released dopamine. That's but what we need them to there. do. That's what you want, but they yeah. didn't stop in a dish, Keek, because, you know, we don't need dopamine in a dish. We need dopamine in your brain. Yeah. Although they didn't go into my brain, thankfully. They went to a mouse. First, they modeled the disease by destroying the dopaminergic neurons in one part of the brain. And then they injected the cocktail of genes in the mirror, 218, into the brain and observed as the mice walked in a tiny treadmill. So typically the disease manifests with unilateral dysfunction. Within five weeks, the mice began to walk straighter. Their movements were coordinated and the posture was improved. This is a big deal and it's not some, you know, small time result. This was very well controlled, well defined, I think proven to agree of of convincing the reviewers at Nature, Biotechnology, a major journal. And this approach opens a new door towards a novel therapeutic 
approaches for Parkinson's, directly converting astrocytes. You know, if a patient disease onset begins, you can put this cocktail in the brain, however risky that may be, we'll have to figure out. And then you don't have to worry about immunosuppression or rejection of those transplanted cells or that they're going to form some crazy other process or mislocalize in the brain and cause, you know, an exaggeration of symptoms. Yeah. So it seems to be more practical, especially considering there's more than 10 million people in the, in the world living with Parkinson's. And directly transducing their cells or transdifferentiating their cells like this could be a way of managing their symptoms. Although we should note, importantly, that this isn't going to stop the disease. This isn't going to cure what's causing the loss of these dopaminergic cells. So if they do transdifferentiate, they may be attacked as well, the cells that you reintroduce there. And then you can always reapply the therapy. But this is something we should bear in mind in terms of how practical this is going to be in addition to other things regarding safety. But just the idea that you can affect a physiological result and relieve disease symptoms in an animal model using just this cocktail, an acellular kind of approach, I think is revolutionary, at least for the treatment of neurological disease. Yeah. I mean, the big thing here, though, is that it's not curing Parkinson's. And so whatever it is that's causing the deterioration and the loss of the dopaminergic neurons is not being halted by this treatment. So it's exciting. I mean, from the standpoint of people having to take a whole bunch of medication and having to foot the bill for, or, you know, the insurance companies having to foot the bill for how many years of medications to moderate the symptoms that just continue to degenerate, this could potentially halt the course temporarily. It could, and depending on the cost difference, if it's this injection process, it might be cheaper than... 10 years of medication, you know, if it has like that same time course of, of success. But I think it's exciting. I think it's very exciting. It's exciting. It's a lot of theoretical. There, it's a though. lot of theoretical. It is. But I think you're right about going into the brain and reprogramming cells in the brain. It's not a transplant. This is just saying, hey, astrocytes in this little area of the brain, why don't you do something different? I think that's the challenge. How focal can we make that delivery? and how sustained. But, you know, you make the brain and then the brain can remodel, but it's hard to introduce new things to the brain. So best to, you know, <laughs> adapt in existing structures. And the brain is famous for that, right? Yeah. People who have strokes end up, yeah, the plasticity of the brain is amazing. So this is just kind of, you know, exploiting that plasticity, maybe augmenting it a bit. It's a pretty cool story. And I think, you know, taking the astrocytes as well, which are known as supportive structures, you know, mm. and I was expecting this story to run the course of, and we're making them even more supportive to support the dopaminergic right. neurons that are still there. No. <laughs> yeah. No. So it's a neat direction to go. And I think that about does it for our roundup. It's time for the interview. But first, our friends at Stem Cell Technologies want to tell you about a new product. Cloner, rhymes with donor, Cloner, is a medium supplement designed for greatly enhancing the cloning efficiency of, and single cell survival of pluripotent stem cells. And unlike current methods, Cloner will enable the robust generation of clonal cell lines without single cell adaptation. This minimizes the risk of acquiring genetic abnormalities, which is really important in your work. Cloner is not yet available. But Stem Cell Podcast listeners can sign up to receive notification 
for when this product becomes available. And if you are interested, head to www.stemcell.com slash cloner, spelled C-L-O-N-E-R, to sign up. Get yourself some cloner, people. It's good. Yeah. All right. So our guest today is Dr. Alison Mwatri. He's the professor at the School of Medicine, University of California in San Diego. Dr. Mwatri's research focuses on modeling neurological diseases, such as autism spectrum disorders, and using human-induced pluripotent stem cells. His lab has developed several techniques to culture human neurons and glia for basic research and drug screening platforms. And most recently, he and his group published a paper reporting the first cellular model of anorexia nervosa reprogramming induced pluripotent stem cells derived from adolescent females with the eating disorder. And today we're going to talk to him about his work and this interesting study, fascinating study, and what the implications are. Dr. Mwatri, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here, guys. It's really great to have you on the show. I mean, I'm very interested in the work that you're doing. So let's get started just by giving our audience a general overview of what you do in your lab. I have a, a PhD in genetics, and I got my training uh, during my postdoc with Rusty Gage at the Salk Institute working on neuroscience and stem cell biology. One of the things that I uh, always wanted was uh, to have uh, human material to study neurological disorders, especially the most uh, disorders that affect like the social brain, cognitive disorders, because those are really hard to recapitulate in an in a animal model, in a mouse model. So I was uh, always constantly looking for ways to be very disruptive and, and trying to find a new model so I could give my contribution to the work. And that when I turned into human embryonic stem cells, I started playing with human embryonic stem cells, started making neurons from them. Uh, this was early days uh, and it was very interesting because everything was uh, so unexplored at the time. Uh, and then by the time I established my lab was when uh, all the data from Shinya Yamanaka uh, showing that you can actually reprogram cells from uh, individuals when it hit that, well, I mean, I could apply that to model diseases. And these, uh, I guess, many other labs doing stem cell biology was, was thinking the same along the same line. So we, we can reprogram cells from patients and, and recapitulate neurodevelopment in the lab so we can gain insights about, especially about the molecular and cellular aspects that can contribute to a disease so my lab has focused on, on autism spectrum disorders, but sometimes we have uh, other projects as well. Uh, and you mentioned the Anorexia Nervosa project. That's, that's another one that we team up with a group of MDs. Uh, these are people who have very well-characterized cohorts. And together we brainstorm, we, we troubleshoot if this cellular model could actually be helpful to model the disorder. So I have been doing this for a while now. Every single disease, every single gene that we work with, it's always a, an interesting story. So I'm, I'm very optimistic with uh, the, the follow-up of this research. I think we are opening new uh, ways to see the disease, especially at these very early stages, and find drugable targets that would speed up uh, drug discovery. So in a nutshell, that, that's what we do. So Dr. Mwacha, you are alluding to the kind of new means of insight and gaining insight into disease. And I think it's really easy for a lot of people to imagine how iPS cells have re revolutionized the way we approach diseases like Huntington's or degenerative diseases that have a biological basis. But I think it takes a lot of imagination and to your credit, 
to try and think of how you can kind of get insight into psychopathology, because I think a lot of well, what I think as a layperson in that regard, think that it's more the convergence of society and like biology there. So it's so much more complex, not to mention personality and all those things. So what are some of the challenges, obviously, is a straightforward question, but I think also you alluded to this, some of the ways that now these tools can provide an insight that you've never had before into psychological disease. Maybe you could address those two sides of your research there. Right, that, that, that's a great point. And that's perhaps one of the major limitations. But there are ways to work around that. So when we reprogram cells, you're basically capturing the entire genome of the person in there and you erase the epigenetic markers. So the interactions with the environments are lost uh, in your model. So you kept, it's all the genetic information and everything resulting from that genetic information is what we have in your model. So in, in a way, I mean, it's really good. So you can prove a genetic basis of a specific disease. And I think the example of anorexia, it, it's an interesting one because genetics was not that clear. I mean, people have been doing like GWAS, uh, trying to associate variants to the disease for a long time. And it's never that clear. But then, I mean, when we program cells and you find something that seems to be to have a logical, biological underlying of the disease, that's reassuring that maybe there is a biological component into that. Obviously, I mean, the negative result you can never discard. But then, I mean, if you, if you have something, I mean, how do you incorporate the environment and the other things in, in your model? So I guess, I mean, that's a hard question and I don't have like the perfect answer. One thing that uh, we have been playing around, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting approach, it is we transplant those patient cells into a mouse brain. We create chimeric brains. Uh, so these are human mice chimeras uh, where the mice will be born. Uh, we do inuterous transplantation in the embryo, in the brains of the embryo. So they, they are born with human neurons fully integrated in different networks into the mouse brain. And you can do that with patient-derived cells. You can do that with a normal control, unaffected derived cells as well. And then you have an animal model that you can expose this animal model to different environmental cues to see how those environmental cues can actually affect the neurons inside your brain. You can even use neuroscience tools that we have right now to see, I mean, are those neurons responding to that environmental cues? Are they being uh, plastic enough? Is there a difference between the patients and the controls? So that, that's our form of incorporating the uh, environment into these uh, disease modeling using stem cells. We think that perhaps in the future, we could completely eliminate an animal model and work uh, with other tools, uh, perhaps computational modeling. Uh, but that's in the future. Right now, that's what we are doing. We really recreate uh, networks containing human neurons in there. And uh, obviously, the question is, I mean, how many neurons is enough? We try to go very low in numbers, so 1% of the neurons in a mouse brain would be human. That's the lowest we, we want, uh, because then we can analyze individual neurons and not get a noise from different fibers that will form. It allows you to look at individual neuron into a network as well to see how that neuron responds. That's the path that we decided to go right now. And so you were taking for this particular anorexia nervosa study, you took actual samples, took stem cells from patients to be able to model this disorder. Can you just kind of briefly go through the methods that you employed? 
We work with a very well-characterized cohort of anorexia patients, and these are females that goes into the eating disorder clinics here at UCSD. And they donate the fibroblast. We got a non-affected uh, family member. We even have like no related controls as well. And we reprogram these cells, pushing them back to this embryonic stage. And from there, we make neurons in a dish. So the techniques that we specifically used for this study was um, um, just pan neuronal differentiation. Our protocol is more into driving these cells into a cortical frontal lobe fate. And then we start looking for different phenotypes. And uh, as I mentioned to you, we have been doing that for other disorders. Some are easy to find uh, perhaps a cellular phenotype. Neurons are less arborized or they make a low number of synapses compared to controls. In this case, we were working with four patients and four controls. Initially, that's what a postdoc can handle at the same time, but we couldn't see anything that was dramatic, at least at the morphology or, or, or cellular level. So we look for neurotransmitters. Usually those diseases have uh, defects into the network. So you should see something neurotransmitters. We screen a bunch of them. We couldn't see any, any difference. So at this stage, I mean, it might be that we're looking for the wrong type of neurons, that uh, the cortex has nothing to do with this disease, and uh, you should look for other neurons. For example, dopaminergic neurons that has been already correlated to anorexia. But before we move into driving these cells to different types of uh, neurons or brain regions, uh, we thought that we should perform an unbiased transcriptional analysis. So we extract a total RNA from those neurons, and then we subject to a, a computational tool so we could compare what are the genes that are up and down in the patients compared to controls. And to our surprise, I mean, it was, um, the differences was all mild, but there is one gene, and that was basically the punchline of this, this story, one gene that was highly upregulated in the patients compared to controls. So the gene was uh, definitely up in the four patients. We validate with independent uh, samples as well, different patients. And in, so far in, in all the patients that we have been testing, this gene is upregulated. The gene is called tachykinin receptor 1. It is a gene that is not like super explored, super studied, but it has been correlated with several other diseases such as chronic inflammation, cancer, infections, and most importantly, additive disorders as well. So we thought that, well, I mean, that's perhaps a, a cue, some, a hint that something is important. So it's a receptor for a neuropeptide that uh, basically works uh, throughout your brain. And virtually all cells have this uh, receptor. And this neuropeptide, the tachykinin peptide, actually makes this bridge between uh, the gut and the brain axis. Mm. It actually informs your brain what's going on in your gut. And that's why we think it's very relevant because it has been correlated to fat metabolism and uh, the perception of fat in your brain. That to me was uh, the most amazing thing. So that might explain why fat food is usually associated with high anxiety in those patients. They try to avoid this high fat food. The perception of fat is also interesting. They see themselves as fat. The analysis of uh, anorexia, the clinical analysis is quite interesting because if you show a skinny person, they would definitely recognize that's a skinny person. But when they see their skinny image reflected in the mirror, they don't see as a skinny person, they see as a fat person. So they try to avoid eating too much fat because they feel that they already have enough. So there's an aversion for eating. And uh, the fact that we got this uh, specific gene, specific pathway, 
And to me, I mean, just shows that, um, wow, we are revealing something here that was uh, never appreciated before, never correlated with the disease before. In that sense, I feel that, yeah, we, we might have hit the jackpot, might be just a piece of the puzzle, but it's an important one. Hmm. I'm sure you've considered, or maybe the reviewer gave you a little bit of grief or heat and getting the paper through, but how about, you know, you talk about the epigenetic residue being reset and the power of this tool. Is there a possibility that it's an acquired defect in the tachykinin and then it's that somehow that epigenetic residue is carrying through the reprogramming process and manifesting in your cortical neurons in a dish? Or I mean, it's difficult to exclude that possibility, but either way, I think it shows the relevance of this disease. But what's your uh, take on that? Hey, that, that? That's absolutely a great question. And this is definitely something that we are following up on, on trying to see how this upregulation is actually happening and, and what stage during the process this, this happens. We definitely don't see that uh, into the iPS cells, for example, or the NPCs, the progenitor cells. We kind of exclude that this is something that was carried on. But nonetheless, I mean, it might be that there is a leftover of an epigenetic mark that points to that once the cells reach out to a more postmitotic uh, neuronal fate. I see. So you showed it wasn't there in the direct progenitors of the cells. Yeah, that's a very strong piece of evidence. In terms of individual variability and what many people probably think of when they consider a disorder like anorexia is that it, like we've mentioned before, that it's psychological, that maybe it is associated with stress or anxiety or depression or any number of things. I, I find it really interesting that you didn't see any morphological differences in the neurons that you were culturing because, I mean, in depression, for instance neurons do not synapse as much. And so you would actually see changes and differences. And so can you comment a little bit on maybe why or why not this tachykinin receptor and peptide are not involved in morphological differences? Absolutely. So we definitely cannot exclude that because it might be that those differences will appear later in life and we have like embryonic neurons, right? So it could be that this will just aggravate over time and, and the stage we, we have it, we don't see it. It could be that it requires uh, this environmental stress that, again, we don't have that in a dish. Or another plausible is the fact that we probably don't have the right neurons. We don't have the right target. We would need to differentiate these cells into different subtypes of neurons. Perhaps we would see something. So the transplantation aspect to generate the chimeric animals for this disorder is quite interesting because you can also... I mean, apply the stress factors into those animals and see if those neurons will still have these um, morphological differences or not. And uh, you can play with the diet as well, how the diet would affect the stress on those neurons. So these are all open-ended possibilities. You know, it's really interesting that now having a target, I'm just thinking this through it. I mean, we're talking about maybe changing the treatment because I think their appreciation now, it's that it's the societal influence or there's pre-existing, you know, conditions that make you at risk. But how do you envision that kind of treatment taking place? Let's like cut to the chase and say we're at a place where we can target this molecule. Can you give us kind of your imagining of how a therapeutic intervention with anorexia might, what kind of shape that might take? For now, so, so people are aware of that, that is not really like a treatment for anorexia. What, what you do is therapies and try to uh, ameliorate the condition for those patients. So thinking about uh, target, using the whole work with IPSCs has opened up this idea that we need to study more our species. 
Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of courage, I think, to get into these psychological disease models. So kudos yeah. to you. In my situation also, working with kids, for example, under the spectrum of autism, and we rely so much on, on post-mortem brain tissues, and most of those tissues are not really of good quality. And we don't have that many to begin with. And the same for anorexia. So having a collection, a brain bank, or even other tissues as well, that's something that I feel that we are missing as a scientific community. There are uh, efforts on, on that direction. I know about uh, autism. They're trying to regrow the banks for autism, having more people under the spectrum, different genetic backgrounds. So we can understand a little bit more about the brain, having a fresh brain for RNA analysis, having fixed tissue so we can do immunostainings. So these are all materials that we are lacking right now. So hopefully, I think it's a very sensitive issue to talk to families about that, but quite an important one, especially for rare disorders. We meet people with uh, rare syndromes. We always try to start this kind of conversation. It's not an easy one, but it's an important one. And the more we talk, I think the, the better we'll have as a community having access to tissues like that. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's going to be absolutely essential, even though, like you mentioned, it is a sensitive subject to people. The other direction is the organoids, the mini brains. So it makes, yeah. you know, develop your own bank of, of tissues as <laughs> opposed to... <laughs> exactly, yeah. We are really excited with, with that part as well. I would say like almost like the entire lab has switched from or working on a 2D culture and we are more and more into like the 3D organoid culture. So it gives you a little bit more of an organization, but also we feel that at the functional level, this will take us to new experiments that we couldn't do in 2D. Yeah, which is very exciting. But you don't stop there. You're going then <laughs> into a working brain of the mouse, which I think is also pretty bugged out. But it's like you say, I mean, it's occurring to me, it's, it gives you to see how the disease pathology at the molecular level, cellular level, in context. And, I mean, you don't necessarily have to put a mouse in front of a mirror. You can just see how those cells mature versus control. It seems like a really powerful uh, experimental system. You're firing on all engines, Dr. Mwatri. Congratulations. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really wonderful speaking with you. And thank you, guys. I mean, it was, uh, I'm glad you guys are doing that. So the more people learn about those things, the better. I just hope that we'll have more support going forward in science from now on. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I got my fingers crossed, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on. Society is going to get behind science, continue to be behind science. I have After faith. After the, the nuclear World War III, maybe. <laughs> when we're picking up the pieces. Well, let's hope not. All right, Kiki, that was Alison Moitri, who told us about the convergence of psychopathology and, I guess, genetic basis and uh, using induced pluripotent stem cells from a very well-defined cohort of anorexia, patients affected by anorexia nervosa. I never thought that I would be so convinced that you could gain insight into psychology, I guess, or uh, psychopathology using this biological reagent. You know, neuropathology I could see, but the psychopathology. Yeah. I got to say, though, he made a good case, and I believe it. 
Well, I think it's have to stand the test of time. You know, I think it's a really interesting direction. But as we talked about in one of your roundup stories, you know, 50% genetics, 50% non-genetic, epigenetic, environmental factors. And so he's found a target. He's found something, you know, and so maybe this can explain at least a certain percentage or population of the people who suffer from anorexia nervosa, which is terrible yeah. thing to suffer from. Terrible. Man. Yeah. Now, like he said, it's horrible. The, the idea that these people are looking in the mirror and seeing themselves as fat is, I, I would love to have some insight. I mean, not personally, but I guess getting some insight into what underlies that is yeah. a really important part of addressing the disease. So Absolutely. kudos, kudos to him and his group. But now, you know, it's time to rant. I'm going to rant, but you're going to rant too, I hope. I've got some ranting. Today, I, I, have to, I need you to help me out here because I don't have a lot of insight into the Facebook and the social media, and I know that you're very good about it. So I've heard <laughs> Too about Too good. I need to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, bearing in mind what we're about to talk about, this yeah. might be the time to, to jump ship. But, you know, if you've been following the news, what's going on with this? People are posting these heinous crimes on Facebook and Facebook Live. I heard a story a long time ago, this woman... She posted her friend being raped in Facebook Live. And now there's this other guy who's murdering people and posting. What's, can you please tell me about what's going on before I blow my top? I have no idea what's going on. I mean, we're talking about psychopathology. This is social pathology that has like descended. People have been posting videos to the internet for as long as the internet's been there, but I don't understand it. First off, posting these terrible things, not stopping a rape, not stepping in when you see somebody being beaten. I mean, you're just going to pick up your phone and, oh, I'm going to put it on my Facebook Live and I don't know who, somebody might do something about it. <laughs> somebody, what? somebody do something. I'm going to post it to you. Somebody over there in Arkansas, How come about, over here and help me out. You have a phone. Why don't you dial 911? Seriously, <laughs> what's going on? It's so scary. And, and, and not to mention... I mean, how does this get on and stay on the internet? People this are sharing a, it then. People are sharing this stuff. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to create a rash of these. I just learned that this guy ultimately shot and killed himself who did this posting just today, which it'll be a week ago by the time this is posted. But the fact is, is that now there's a bunch of people out there who are like, you know what? That's a great idea. I want to get a million hits on my video. And what, the, what are they going to do to get it? Sick, Kiki. I know. This video was shared of this man killing another man. It was shared 1.6 million times, like in a day. That's horrible. Within one day, 24 hours. And yeah, who are the people? So maybe it gets shared or you see it in your newsfeed, in your stream of social consciousness, right? And then you share it. Yeah, and then are there likes? What? If there's likes to, for this thing, I'm gonna I'm gonna get upset right now. I don't. I know. This, I bet there's a bunch of likes. We need. To, I mean, there needs to be a point where people step in and say this is not okay. It took something like three hours for Facebook to figure out that video was there and to take it down. That video could have been reported within the first five minutes. One point three million hits in three hours, huh, Kiki? People couldn't get enough of this video, huh? See something, say something. We got to stop nipping in the bud. This is us. This is our world, people. Come on. Yeah. Let's share positive things. 
Let's share things to try and help make the world a better place. I, I mean, share right? pictures of your kids. Yeah, oh, more babies. Can we have more babies on the internet, please? Cats, babies. I'm so, <laughs> oh, I'm so bummed. I started off this podcast. I was psyched. My brother had a baby. And I guess circle of life. Of course, I'm going to end the podcast miserable. Talking about <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you know, you're miserable. Uh, you're just a miserable person sometimes. <laughs> Jeez. Sometimes, Kiki, sometimes. Yeah, you can say it. Let's close this down by, I want to say thank you to everybody who does share the positive things and who really actively tries to make the world a better place. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Keep it up. Keep it, Keep it up. up. And all you trolls go to hell. <laughs> all right. That does it for our rant. You can send us ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Ah, uh, Dalen, that concludes episode 90 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Next episode, episode 91. Everyone, be sure to tune in. All right. Thanks, Kiki. Thanks to all you positive shares. Again, keep it up. <laughs>